Dear Father, as we come before you today, pray that you may open our hearts and our minds to feel the real force of the warning that Paul gives to Corinthian Christians to not rise above it or to feel that uh, this situation has no relevance to us, but to see that truly, uh, in every age, in every, in every place, the human nature, the human condition is the same. Uh, we are constantly tempted by Satan and we are constantly weak now for the way. Now, have you ever been blinded by the boasts or promises of people? Have you ever been blinded by people who say one thing but really mean another? Uh, have you been blinded by people who project an image of themselves but the reality behind the image is really very different? Now, unfortunately, uh, the world is full of very dangerous people in this way where they blind us to the reality of who they are. Now, I remember uh, many years ago, uh, obviously, uh, my memory of this is a bit hazy because I was concentrating on playing golf at the time, but uh, this golfing friend of mine was telling me about how a friend of his had a son who uh, married this lady and uh, many years, uh, so, so, well, not many years, but a few years later, uh, actually divorced him and took everything. And he was so distraught, the son, that he actually ended up in the mental institution. And apparently, according to this uh, friend of mine, uh, he said that people had warned this man, the young son, about this woman, that she wasn't what she seemed to be, that she was actually a different person than what the son had thought that this woman was like. But what was his problem? He was blinded by love. And that's a problem, isn't it? Because we can often be blinded to dangerous people. We're blinded by love. We're blinded by reputation. We're blinded by money. We're blinded by personality. And unfortunately, other people can see the deception, but we are blind to it. And it's tragic enough when it comes to, say, something like marriage because, or maybe a relationship because you lose your heart. But the problem that uh, is at stake here for the church in Corinth was that these dangerous people were blinding the minds and the hearts of the Corinthian Christians, and they were in danger of losing their salvation. Now, for those of us who are new to 2 Corinthians, uh, the background is quite important. Uh, <coughs> the slide up here. As we've seen over the last few weeks and months, uh, Paul had evangelized uh, the, play, uh, the city of Corinth in the ancient world uh, during his second missionary journey. He had spent one and a half years there. The next slide. Okay, so he had gone to Athens, as we read, um, as we've gone through Corinth, and also if you look in the book of Acts, he went through Athens, and after going through Athens, he went to a very major city called Corinth. After he had evangelized the Corinthian Christians, after he had founded the church, established the church, one and a half years later, he left to do mission work elsewhere. And when he had left, false apostles or false teachers had come in, and they had started drawing away the Corinthian Christians, to a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit of salvation. And last week, if you look uh, with me, you need your Bibles open to you today, because we're going to go through in detail, as we do every week. In chapter 11, at the end of last week's passage, which is just before this week's passage, in verse uh, 13 and 14, Paul actually reveals these people to be false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as the angel of light. It is not surprising then that his servants 
should also masquerade as servants of righteousness. So, he calls it as it is, and he says that these people who have come in, into the midst of the Corinthian Christians, were actually no, no other than Satan, coming among them, masquerading as apostles, masquerading as, uh, as servants of the light. Now, the question that we have asked is, why is it the Corinthian Christians couldn't see the danger? Why is it the Corinthian Christians were blind to this? Well, as we saw again last week, in verse 3, a part of the reason was because we learned that these uh, false teachers were very cunning and were very smooth talkers. So in verse 3 of chapter 11 last week, Paul says, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow have been led astray from her sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So they were blinded by the boast, by the cunning boast of the false teachers. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, uh, the false teachers created a very impressive picture of themselves. They said that they were very good in terms of their presentation, their speaking ability. They said they were very good in terms of their leadership ability. They said they were very good in terms of their spiritual experiences like visions or revelations from God. Or they were, they were boasting about their spiritual knowledge or their inside connection to Jesus Christ. And today, Paul continues to undermine and to reveal that these boasts are actually all false. So he says, today, the first thing we read, that Hokin read to us today, verse 16, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Now, what he's actually saying here was that the, the, the Corinthian Christians were actually adopting and accepting as very normal behavior this practice by the false teachers of boasting in a self-confident, self-gratifying, impressive way. And he says that, that is, this, is, this is foolish behavior. This is, this is speaking like a fool, but I will speak like a fool because you are accepting it. But he says, look, this is not how Christians or Christian leaders behave. Because in verse 17 he says, I'm not talking as the Lord, as the Lord here, the Lord Jesus would. When you look at the Gospels, when you look at the life of Jesus, you never see Jesus boasting in a worldly, impressive, self-confident way, isn't it? Jesus is a humble, gentle person. So, Paul is saying, look, I, I don't act like this normally, but you are forcing me to act like this, and I, and I hope that you will take me for a fool, so that I may boast, to undermine the boast of these false teachers. Now, why is it this was such a big problem? Why did Paul have to resort to going down the worldly level of boasting in order to win the Corinthian Christians back? Well, the problem comes in verse 18, isn't it? He says that, look, I'm forced to act like a fool before you, in verse 18, since many are boasting in the way the world does. I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Now there are three really important things that we learn about the, the Corinthian Christians here. Three mistakes, fatal mistakes that they were making, which we should never mistake. One is, 
many people were boasting in their midst in the way that the world does. I read that again. Many people are boasting in the way that the way does. Uh, the world does, right? The world does. Now, that shows that the Corinthian Christians didn't just have one or two false teachers among them. There were many, many false teachers among them. It was like an epidemic, uh, uh, epidemic, sorry, epidemic of false teachers in their midst. But rather than rejecting these false teachers, rather than calling them out and saying, look, you are not doing the right thing, you're boasting in a worldly way, Paul says in verse 19, you gladly put up with them. Not only were they just tolerating them, they were accepting and adopting and embracing this practice of worldly boasting. They accepted the truth of the boasts of the false teachers. They accepted the practice of worldly boasting by the false teachers. And they were sort of reversing and making upside down the whole Christian practice of ministry in their midst because the model of Christian ministry for the Corinthian Christians was worldly boasting. And the worst thing about it comes at the end of verse 19, isn't it? You gladly put up with these fools since you are so wise. Now, it actually says that not only were they accepting and adopting and embracing this, these false teachers for their worldly boasting, but by doing so, they thought that they were really clever. They thought they were really wise. They thought they were actually more superior and better than the other Christians in the other regions, in Achaia and Macedonia, which is the region where they were at. Now, in many ways, when we look at the Corinthian Christians, it's a warning to us. It's a warning from God to us. That we need to watch out for the same things that these Corinthian Christians failed to watch out for. Because many people had come into their midst, many false teachers who were boasting putting themselves forward in a worldly way, and the Christian Christians were accepting them because they thought they were really wise. Now, even today, I think that, uh, whether we accept it or not, I think that there are many false teachers in the world today. And I think that one way of identifying them, is just like Paul was saying here, they boast foolishly. They boast in a worldly way. And they do not speak as Jesus Christ would speak. I remember uh, Cheryl, my wife, used to work for Scripture Union. So uh, they, they used to sell like this daily bread, kind of daily reading guide, and we used to go to different churches. And I used to listen to some sermons by many church speakers and pastors. And uh, they would spend the first 10 minutes introducing themselves. And half the sermon would be made out of illustrations boasting about who they are, what they have done, and who they have met. And I was sort of thinking... This is not a sermon, no? This is about a political campaign speech about how great they are. You know, the idea of being a preacher is not to preach yourself, but to preach God's word. But yet, when I looked around many of the congregations which I visited, the congregation really lapped it up. They, they love this sort of worldly boasting. They love the fact that, that their pastor or their church was so successful in a worldly way. So I've heard many sermons before unbelievably to me, where I would hear about the size of the pastor's house. I would hear about how successful their ministry 
was. I'll hear about who they had met. I'll hear about which famous person had commended them. I'll hear about what spiritual experiences and visions they had received from Jesus Christ, or where they had studied and what degrees they had. But if you look at what Paul is saying here, this is foolish behavior, isn't it? This is this is worldly boasting. Because ultimately, this is not the way that Jesus Christ taught. Jesus does not talk this way. Jesus does not boast in a worldly way. What counts in the end for the preacher, according to Paul, as we've seen all the way through 2 Corinthians, is faithfulness. It doesn't matter how impressive the pastor is or the preacher is, it is whether he speaks faithfully. So in Galatians chapter 1, if you look up here, right, it's irrelevant to Paul the Apostle how impressive the pastor is or the preacher is. So in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul has said to the Galatian church, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we already have said, so now I say again, <coughs> if anyone is preaching to your gospel other than what you've accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now you cannot be more impressive than an angel. You know, it doesn't matter how big your house is or what car you drive, you are not more impressive than an angel, right? But, but in God's eyes, it is irrelevant if you are like an angel. If you shine like an angel, what is, what is important is the gospel that you preach that is faithful. And that's why when you look at the pastoral epistles at like 1 Timothy and Titus, there is no qualification in terms of worldly impressiveness. But it's always about character and faithfulness to God's word. So the warning that we have to take heart from here is, don't be fools. Don't be taken in by fools by their worldly boasting. <coughs> Now the second thing is, in verse 19, there's this shocking thing about how part of the reason why the Corinthian Christians were putting aside Paul and embracing many of these false teachers is because they thought they were so wise. They thought they were more mature and more discerning and they had moved on in the Christian life beyond other Christians. Now there's a temptation of pride, isn't it? It's a temptation that we all face. I remember a lecturer at my theological college used to tell us and warn us actually as pastors that there is a certain arrogance and pride and superiority that comes from being part of the latest fad of the latest teaching. I've seen it before in my own life as a Christian. In my relatively short Christian life. You know, people come up to me and they say, oh, you know, what is your church doing? Oh, you know, we're just going through Corinthians you know, my church is going through the, the prayer of Jabez, you know. Have you heard this latest thing called the prayer of Jabez? We're doing that, no? Oh, have you, have you heard of the purpose-driven church? We are doing that, our church, in a purpose-driven church. Or someone said, have you, has your church moved on? <coughs> moved on to holy laughter? Oh, obviously, all these facts all passed already, so I can use them, right? Okay? So, there's a sense where when people say, you know, we've moved on to these latest things, there's a certain pride and superiority that comes because, you know, we have got the latest thing. We've, you know, you, you've still got faith alone and Christ alone and uh, grace alone. We've, we've got this other thing. And that's exactly the problem that the Corinthian church faced. In their desire to be wiser, to be 
superior from the other churches, as we know that they had this problem. They had a desire for new things and they wanted to move beyond what the Apostle Paul had taught them. But in their so-called wisdom, they actually been blinded, seduced by Satan. Now it goes on and shows us that beyond the mistake of believing the boast of the false teachers or this desire to be wiser and smarter than the other churches, there was another problem, isn't it? Because in verse 20 it says, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or even slaps you in the face. Okay, I think that's obviously, or maybe not, I don't know, maybe they really slap them in the face, but it could be a metaphorical thing. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Now, it's kind of hard to understand uh, in verse 20 how extreme the false teacher's behavior was. But it makes sense because if the false teachers were boasting of a worldly uh, success and worldly model of leadership, they would then practice a worldly leadership among the Corinthian Christians. And worldly leadership, in those days anyway, they didn't uh, practice democracy, like we do today, right? was a dictatorial, sort of bullying, tyrannical style of worship. Uh, leadership, sorry, not worship, leadership. So they were behaving like dictators in their churches. Now, clearly, the Bible says that there was always a difference between Christian leadership and worldly leadership. Even the apostles wanted to use worldly, tyrannical, bullying leadership among God's people. Okay, so if you look up here, 1 Peter chapter 5, right? Uh, Peter warns uh, his hearers, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to, to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being example. See, so there's a contrast between lording it over people, which is what the false teachers are doing, and service. In Luke chapter 22, right? Jesus warns the apostles. And a dispute arose among the, the apostles as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. So Paul, his model of Christian leadership was service. But the Corinthian Christians saw that as weak. They wanted a powerful, strong leadership, a worldly leadership. And what did they get? They got the false teachers who enslaved them, took advantage of them, and even slapped them in the face. Now, many commentators say that this exploitation uh, definitely has connotations of monetary and financial exploitation. They were, these false teachers, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, they used the, the, the sophist model, the ancient Greek sophist model, where they expected to be paid great fees for their teaching. And they expected the, the disciples 
their disciples to pay them like a tuition center, right? So there was exploitation in terms of monetary sense. And we know that Paul didn't exploit them because he, he didn't charge them anything. So Paul was too weak to charge them money. Paul was too weak because he served them. But yet they turned to false teachers who exploited them monetarily and abused them and enslaved them. Why? Because they were taken in by their worldly boasts. Now, even today, right, I was sort of struggling with thinking about how this applies today, but I think that in many senses, it's still sort of relevant, isn't it? Because Christians today, I think some churches, hopefully not this church, because they reflect on me, right, uh, are willing to put up with pastors who exploit them and, and behave in a worldly way for the sake of worldly promises of success, or even worldly success. I know, personally, of pastors who behave in a very dictatorial, bullying way, and uh, some people in the church come and complain to me, and I say, well, wh- why don't you get rid of this person? And they say, well, you know, if he's, he's such a good speaker, if, if he leaves, the people will leave too. I know of a, a very well-known pastor, uh, I don't think you've ever heard of this person, is overseas, who would actually shout and scold uh, people who come to church. So if you come to church late, he will actually point you out and say, Hey, why are you late? Sitting in the back, right? Why does the congregation put out of it? Because he has a reputation of being a good speaker and he pulls in the crowd. So the congregation don't want to let him go because then the church numbers will fall. See, if you ask some uh, Christian congregations from the bottom of their heart, which they prefer, church growth or church faithfulness, they would say, I prefer church growth. See, the false teachers were promising worldly success, numbers, finance, growth. But they were willing to tolerate, therefore, the false teachers' worldly behavior. But I see, ultimately, that was not what Paul was interested in. Paul was interested in service for the sake of faithfulness to the gospel. See, as we've, as we've been going through, we, we, we've sort of been given these a partial painting of these false teachers. These false teachers, the motivation was partly money. Right? A lot of it was money. And for many of these churches, which followed these false teachers, the reason was worldly success in terms of money and numbers. See, the problem is, that's what made them so dangerous, isn't it? Because if you choose to have church growth in terms of numbers and finances above everything else, then I think the Bible is very clear that you will eventually leave the gospel for a different gospel. You will leave Jesus for a different Jesus. So if you look up here in Titus chapter 1, right, it says, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, for they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach for the sake of dishonesty. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Anyone teaches false doctrine that does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of corrupt mind who will be robbed of the truth. And the thing that godliness is a means to financial gain. So, 
there is always that correlation, I think, when you look in the Bible, between the desire for growth in terms of finances, the motivation of money, above all else, false teaching. Because as you want growth at all costs, then what it costs is faithfulness to the gospel. And that was what was happening here, as many commentators say, to the Corinthian church. These false teachers were promising all sorts of worldly things, worldly success, worldly glory. But in order to achieve that, they would, they would give up the gospel. I remember reading this book, I was given it a long time ago, uh, my first year at theological college, it was called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And uh, the first, uh, one of the first chapters, it says, success is faithfulness. Now, success is faithfulness. In God's eyes, in Jesus' eyes, which is always what accounts in the end, what is success? Success is faithfulness. Jesus doesn't care about finances or numbers. What he cares is faithfulness to his word. Now, as we go on, in verse 21 onwards, we see that, sorry, in verse uh, yep, 21b onwards, we see that this false teaching comes in a form of cultural and racial superiority, isn't it? Whatever anyone else to boast about, <coughs> I'm speaking as a fool, so he's boasting now, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. So what was probably happening was, uh, part of the, again, the false teaching of the, these false teachers was, they were claiming to be superior than other Christians because they claim, we don't know whether it's true or not, maybe it is true or not, they claim to be Jews. But not just Jews, but Jews from Israel. They were not the diaspora, they were not Greek-speaking Jews, they were Hellenistic, not Hellenistic Jews, they were Hebrew Jews, born and raised in Israel. And not only that, they called themselves they were Abraham's descendants. They were part of the line of Abraham. They were part of the, the saved people, they were saying. And they were boasting that because they were part of like the, the lineage of the true Israel, okay, the true Israel is how they saw themselves, therefore, they were better than other Christians. Now, when, you, when people talk like this, when anybody ever says, I am a better Christian than you because of some bloodline or some cultural uh, heritage or something, that is, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel of grace. That is not the gospel of forgiveness. That is not the gospel of, of the love of God. Right. Paul had said very clearly, if you look at the next slide, in Ephesians chapter 2, isn't it? He says, look, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised who do, who, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is the Jewish people, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You see, it's, very, it's a very clear thing 
that the gospel has taught us. That in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile stand equally in salvation before God. But these false teachers are saying, look, no, we are better than you. You need to listen to us because we are real Jews. We speak Hebrew, we're born of the line of Abraham, so you need to listen to us. And this shows the false teaching, the false gospel that they were bringing into the church. Now Paul goes on to speak in verse 23. He said, are they servants of Christ? And then he says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And when you read that, the expectation is that Paul would match the, the, the boast of the false teachers one by one, right? So, you know, I'm from Harvard. And he said, no, I'm from, I'm nowhere. Stanford or something. I'm from Oxford. I'm from Cambridge. Whatever, right? That's the expectation, right? So, you know, the false apostles said, I had all these visions. And Paul said, I had all these more visions, right? I healed a hundred people and Paul said, I healed a thousand people. But then what really happens next is really like Paul saying, like he's talking like he is out of his mind because he, he overturns the expectations of the boasting. And here, as I read it, as you read it, hopefully when you do your Bible studies and you reflect on it on your own quiet time, it is a really sad indictment of the life of Paul. Because instead of boasting of glory and success and triumph, which these false uh, teachers are doing, Paul boasts of failure, weakness, shame, and suffering. Now, let's look at the first one. You need your Bibles. Just, just take out your Bibles with me and, and just look at it line by line, right? He says, look, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was pelted with stones. Now, this is a testimony of the, the pain of ministry of Paul, isn't it? Five times he received uh, from the Jews. Okay, the Jews. Okay, look out here, Matthew. Next slide. Uh, yeah, Matthew 10, Jesus had warned the apostles, be on your guard against the men. They will hand you over to the local council and flog you in the synagogue. So the flogging here would have been administered by the Jewish people in the synagogue. Probably because Paul had preached there, they didn't like what he said, they come and flog him, right? Oh, very dangerous to preach in the synagogues there, not like in church today. Okay? So anyway, imagine five times he was flogged 39 times. Can you imagine how many times has he been flogged? Five times 39 is what? Oh, okay. Y'all can't work it out. Okay? So anyway, I think it's 195. I, I worked that out myself. Okay? So, can you imagine he had been flogged 195 times for preaching to the Jews? How much did he love the Jewish people to risk walking to those synagogues again and again, city, 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 to be flogged 195 times for preaching the gospel. Three times, it says, Paul said, he had been beaten with rods. And this is probably 
the Jew, the, the, the Romans, not the Jewish, but the Romans beating him, right? So like in Acts chapter 16, which I put up here, you can read it yourself. Three times he was beaten, and, and, and don't know how many, right? For reaching out to various people, and the Romans punished him. Once he had been stoned, right? Uh, this is not the drug stone, but with real stone, okay? So in Acts chapter uh, 16, Acts chapter 14, sorry, Acts chapter 14, some Jews came and warned the crowd over and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. So he wasn't pelted with no little pebbles. He was, he was hit with big rocks until they thought he was dead. After they thought he was dead, they dragged him out and they threw him out of the city. And then he sort of woke up a few hours later maybe. And then he decided to go to make city and start preaching again. Now, here's Paul, not boasting of, oh, you know, I planted this great church and it grew to this great number. There were so many people, the church couldn't contain it. You know, and we had so much money, you know, he's saying, this is the effort that I put into loving and reaching out with the gospel to people. His life was one of constant persecution for the sake of the gospel. He goes on to say, describing and boasting of his ministry, Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I was I've constantly been on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I think it's safe to say that he lived a dangerous life. His life was one of constant danger. Right? When he says, I've been in danger in the country, I've been in danger in the city, I've been in danger at sea, the only place left is outer space, right? Okay? That's the only place where you can find safety. His life of ministry was one of constant danger. And he was not in danger just from the natural elements, but he was in danger from Jews and Gentiles, and it says here, false brothers. And again, I think, as the Corinthian Christians read this, they should have realized that in Paul's eyes, the false teachers were just as much a danger to Paul in Paul's eyes as being caught in the open sea for a day and a night. That was the danger that he saw of these false teachers. He lived a life of persecution. He lived a life of danger. He lived a life of hardship and poverty. In verse 27, I've labored, I've toiled, I've gone, often gone without sleep, I've known hunger and thirst, and often gone without food, I've been cold and naked. You see, the, the false teachers, as we've been seeing, they base themselves on the Greek sophists. And uh, they would never have toiled and labored and hungered like this. They would have led, led a life of ease and luxury and comfort. But while they were earning more and more from their preaching fees and commanding bigger and bigger crowds and fame and adoring followers, what was Paul doing? Paul was living below the poverty line. He was traveling, he was suffering cold, he was suffering nakedness, he was suffering 
not enough food. There is no promises of health and wealth for Paul here. There are no promises of prosperity for Paul in the gospel. But only hardship and difficulty. And more than that, he suffers inwardly. Besides everything else, in verse 28 he says, I face daily. Notice that word there, daily. Daily. The pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is not something which comes into his head once a month during the monthly prayer meeting, right? Every day, he is concerned for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? You see, what was the concern? What what kept up Paul at night? What kept Paul up was knowing that there was someone weak somewhere, not physically weak, but weak in terms of their faith. Some Christian brother or sister who he had heard was stumbling into sin, who was led into some wrong doctrinal teaching or wrong living. And because of that, he inwardly felt weak and burned himself. See, the false teachers, what would keep the false teachers up at night? What would they worry about? They were not worrying about whether the followers were weak or whether they were stumbling into sin. What what they worried about was whether the church was growing, whether they will get more and more of their fees, more and more of their money. But Paul says, no, that, that is not the way, that is not what keeps me up at, my, at night. I worry about the spiritual walk of all the people in all the churches. Not for whether they give me money, or they give me fame, or they follow me. Then he goes on with the last boast, which is the, I, go, I guess it, you know, if you look at the CV, this is like the high point, okay? The last thing, right? This is like my master's and my PhD. And what does he say? If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. So here, he says, look, this is what I did, right? And Jesus knows that I'm telling the truth. And you expect some great thing that Paul did. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Messines guarded in order to rescue me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Now, if you go and look at the book of Acts, this was the first ministry place of Paul. Okay, remember Paul has vision from Jesus where? On the road to Damascus, right? So, he, he, you know, Paul is commissioned by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes to Damascus for his first Mission trip, which is met with great success, no. Which is met with great shame and rejection and defeat. He goes there, and uh, instead of coming out, the whole city transformed to be Christians. He has to be lowered down in a basket. Now, people ask, why does Paul end in this way? Why this particular example? Could be because this was the first mission thing that Paul ever did. It could be also because in those days there was a military award given, and I'm sure if you watch Lord of the Rings or whatever, where the first person who climbs up the wall is like the best soldier, right? You know, like you know, like hey, you know, they, they throw the rope up and guy the first soldier that goes up there, he is like given the purple heart of courage or something. But here, what is Paul's boast? I'm the first down the wall. 
I'm the first down on the wall in a smelly basket which probably contained rotten vegetables or fish or something like that. That is what I will boast about. Now why does Paul boast in this way? There is no doubt if we look at the rest of Paul's life, you look at the book of Acts, you look at all his letters, Paul could have boasted about a lot of things when he was very, very successful. You look at the book of Acts, remember? Paul was such a figure that when he walked past people, when they touched him or even when the shadow fell on them, they were healed. Why didn't Paul boast about that? We know that Paul you know, did great work and, 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 and you look at so many of the letters that he wrote, he, he converted so many people. Like, he mustn't have been that bad a speaker because in the book of Acts, when he was speaking once before, some people thought that he was mistaken for a God. Why didn't he boast about that? I think the reason is because Paul wants to turn upside down the boasting of the false teachers. Because these false teachers were boasting of a Christian life with no suffering, which was filled with worldly success, worldly impressive things, Numbers, fame, fortune, peace, lack of suffering, hardship, glory, happiness. But Paul undermines that boasting by saying, look, this is the reality of Christian life, Christian leadership. It is following Jesus Christ and carrying the cross. See, Jesus has said in Luke chapter 9, right? Jesus said to them all, the crowd, whoever comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose and forfeit his very self? Now, this is what the Christian life is like. But what the false teachers were proclaiming uh, was what many commentators say was over-realized eschatology. They were, they were promising paradise or heaven on earth. Success, worldly recognition, peace, happiness. But Paul says, no, this is the reality of Christian life. Suffering and service for Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the world today, unfortunately, there are still people who believe in the promises of this worldly boast. The worldly boast of where if you follow the Christian life, you will have the opposite of what Paul boasted. You will have no suffering, no pain, no persecution for your godliness. You will only find success in glory and triumph. But Paul is saying, no, that's not true, isn't it? That's not what Jesus says. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to take up your cross. There will be persecution, there will be denial, there will be pain, there will be suffering. But if you look at this passage, <coughs> the reality is there are some churches which deny this passage. I remember uh, there's a person in our church who actually spoke to someone before who said that his church preaches that this passage does not apply to Christians. It only applies to the apostles. And that when we live today, we will not experience any of these things. We don't need to take our cross. We don't need to deny ourselves. We only expect as a Christian to be happy, wealthy and wise. But that's what exactly what Paul is overturning, isn't it, when he's saying this. That is what Paul's teachers say, because that is not the truth. If you want to follow Jesus, then you will experience a fraction, perhaps, of what Paul experienced. Now, ultimately, when we come down to it, 
Paul is very clear, isn't it? Don't be blinded by people who boast of worldly, worldly things, but rather look to pleasing the Lord Jesus. In conclusion, I remember uh, reading about Germans, in German history, who followed Hitler. <coughs> Can I lend you the book? And uh, some of them were saying that, you know, when they listened to Hitler, have you ever heard Hitler preach before? Oh, no, preach, he never preached, sorry, speak before. Okay, he was a pastor. Have you ever seen Hitler speak before? He was amazing, isn't it? The whole, imagine a stadium like the National Stadium. And they're all there, and he's going, you know, right now he's shouting and doing all these things, right? And everybody is just transfixed on Hitler. You know, he's like, um, I mean, he's not really a madman, but you can feel his personality even when you watch him black and white today. If you ever get a chance, go to YouTube or just watch some uh, clips of Hitler speaking. It's amazing. And these people said that when Hitler spoke, it was almost like you were in a trance, you were in a dream, because he spoke the German dream's aspiration. But it was only later that they realized that he was a monster. I think in the same way, we can be transfixed and, 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 and we can listen to people boast of worldly things that we want to hear, worldly success, um, being people, actually, the world actually uh, being impressed by us as Christians, the world being wanting to be like us as Christians, and we think that's what we want. But then we have to ask ourselves, is this what the Gospel tells us? Is this what the Lord Jesus was all about? I remember Jimmy Carter, uh, who was openly a confessing Christian, once said that when he went to church, he felt that this was not the model of Jesus. Jesus was not there because this was not the character of Jesus. I thought that was an interesting thing to say. When you go to a church, you ask yourself, is this what Jesus is like? Is this the character of Jesus reflected in this church? And it wasn't, isn't it? It wasn't this church in Corinth because they were following worldly ways of thinking, worldly success, worldly promises. Don't be blinded. Don't be blinded when people promise these worldly things to you. I've met Christians who tell me of their children or themselves where, oh, you know, my son or my daughter went to this church. Oh, you know, God really blessed them. They were a C student, now they're A. Right? And I think, Okay, don't listen to them. Don't be blinded by them, right? Okay? I've heard people say, oh, you know, my church has so many so-and-so CEO of all these companies. I'm like, okay. Don't be blinded by them. My church grew by 50% last year. Okay, that's good for you. My pastor speaks to God. God speaks to him. He has all these visions and God, he can see all these things that nobody else can see. Don't be blinded, right? That's what Paul is saying. I've heard people say, oh, you know, ever since I've gone to this church, my, my, my pain here has been gone, you know. The, the church healed this pain of mine. Okay, let's go for you, right? My church has built this new sanctuary. You know, it's so big. We've got all these things in it. Don't be blinded because ultimately this is foolish boasting. This is, this is not what counts to the Lord Jesus, right? Is Jesus really impressed by all these things? No. At the end of the day, what Paul is saying, only listen to what the Lord Jesus Only do what matters to the Lord Jesus and be faithful to Him alone. And then you will not follow and be made fools of false teachers. So let's go to God and pray. Dear Father, as we come before you today, 
We pray that you may give us wisdom to learn from the mistakes of the Corinthian Christians who are taken in and blinded by the boasts of these false teachers. We pray that we may not be blinded by the boasts of what people say, that we will not be impressed in worldly boasting, but rather we will always see things through the eyes of your Son, the Lord Jesus, to see what really matters to Him, to hold on to Him alone, to be faithful to Him. We pray that we may not be wiser than Jesus Christ, that we not, may not run after and seek to move on, move beyond your gospel. We pray that we will not be seduced into promises, false promises of worldly success. But as we've seen from the Apostle Paul, that though he had so much success to boast upon, yet chose to reveal the reality of his Christian ministry, a life of great and intense suffering, persecution, danger, deprivation, and cares and worries. Dear Father, we pray for ourselves that you may make us wise and keep us from all these temptations, both as individuals and as a church. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.